0: Beautiful song About a beautiful friendship. and That's what I want to talk with you about this morning. How do you protect that friendship? That's the point of this message Now if you don't have a friendship with Jesus yet if it's more if it's driven by something else, especially fear Then that's a subject worth reflecting on. It's not my subject today. I want you to love Jesus But I also want you to know how to stay in love with Jesus. I do want to strike another note on the student missions. Thank you so much, uh, student missions coordinators, ambassadors from the North American Division for being here. Friends, talk about it in the way. Talk about it when you sit down and eat. These young people, if they put their hand on the plow, will become partners with Jesus Christ and it will anchor them into a deeper walk with him. So be mentioning this. Teachers, talk about this. Nothing could make me happier. I have four children. I tried to get all four of them to do this. But the first three were resistant. But my daughter right now, who's a second grade teacher in Palau, there is so much beautiful that's going on in her life. and. It just has blessed me, and I know it's blessing her, and I know it's blessing God's work. We depend on our students in some parts of the country to teach our schools. So I'm I'm begging you, let God show you what he wants to do with your life. Talk to your kids, your grandkids, your nieces, and your nephews. Hold it up before them, pray, and may God use them. And then the other thing I want to mention before we go into the Word of God is that and we had a wonderful financial rally at the end of our year. I'm appealing to you, though. I'm not going to preach on it, although I thought about it. But I want to appeal to you. Join with me and so many others in systematic benevolence. Sister Betsy is what they called it. And back in the beginning, I read an interesting quote this week. Back in the beginning, before we formed an organization, some people were saying, if you form an organization, you'll be babbling. And James White said, we've got babbling already we need to get out of Babylon. In other words, the disorganization was terrible. I want to tell you how wonderful it is when God's church is not reduced to begging for money. The Satan that that is against us does not want our churches well-armed, well-armored, well-ready to strike and expand the kingdom of God with volunteer spirit, with volunteer effort, and with financial resources. So what does systematic benevolence mean? It's returning an offering like you return tithe so the tithe is god's it's not even yours to keep it's not a question mark how much you give as an offering is up to you what the church has thrived on through the years is when we take a portion three to five percent and return it to the local church one to two percent to the conference michigan advanced partners and one to two percent to the world budget friends take a tithe of lobe home with you look at it and join in the legions of faithful Seventh-day Adventists who have expanded this message around the globe. So much more to do, but they've done it because there is a revenue stream of willing offerings from willing hearts. Let's not find ourselves next October looking to make up so much lost revenue. So I'm appealing to you, take a tithe envelope, Stick it in your Bible. I will be talking with you about it and calling for a decision somewhere down the road. But this morning, a little interaction. Let's pray. Lord, we've gathered in your house. We are here because you've reached out to us and we've responded. It could have been through a parent or a teacher, it could have been through a stranger or a pamphlet, it could have been through a preacher. Somehow, Lord, you've reached out to us and we've responded to your wonderful invitation to be your friends, your children. Now, Lord, I pray, bless us as we think about how to protect that relationship and how to advertise to the world that we belong to a different leader. Bless us now to that end. May Jesus be lifted up, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. In April 26 of 1986, certain things were going terribly wrong in the Ukraine. There was a nuclear reactor with four reactors under four different roofs. We know it as Chernobyl. It would come to be the worst nuclear accident in the history of man, Fukushima in Japan, not too far behind it. This sermon will be a little bit different, maybe a lot different than the last sermon because I had so many people talk to me between first and second services. What happened was, was that Uh, there was a delay in the enactment of a test in the reactor. Reactor number four, I believe it was. Maybe it was number three, I'm not sure. But as they waited 10 hours to power the reactor down, a different crew came on board. And unfortunately, that crew was not as prepared for the practice session. And when things got out of control, they got way out of control. There was an explosion. In the city surrounding Chernobyl, where you had a disproportionate level of well-educated, and better-funded families, the children were playing in what looked like snow falling from the sky. The only problem was it was deadly radioactive ash from the reactor itself. If you've seen the documentary on Chernobyl, you know that they sought to cover it up hour after hour after hour. What I learned in between church services, one of our engineers who works in one of our local nuclear power plants told me. It was as if the illustration was more tailor-made for me than I knew. And that is that there were standards in Chernobyl that none of the rest of the reactors in the Soviet Union were willing to go against. But in Chernobyl, they abandoned the standards that would protect the, the, the testing they were doing and when they abandoned those standards, things got out of control. It is a sad thing to think that not only did so many people lose their lives or their quality of life, as information was withheld from them, it's, it's a phenomena in which we see a perfect spiritual shadow or window or metaphor as Satan himself would seek to keep back from us the information that would protect our joy and our freedom. And instead of our children playing in the nuclear reactive ash in their Ukraine, we find instead today our children living inside a culture in which an experiment has gone terribly wrong. And the experiment is a social one. The standards have been abandoned. And what we're seeing now is a meltdown. And so many of our young people are being picked off as the information from this generation-long experiment is just slowly coming to the service. Long after mental appetites have been calibrated for idol worship and social self-destruction. This morning, friends, I wanna talk with you about how to save your children and yourself from a wicked world. And along the way, we're gonna realize that salvation and standards are not opposites. They actually come together quite closely. I wanna talk for you in the beginning about weddings. I've had my chance to do a whole lot more weddings than most people. I've done a lot of premarital counseling. And there's one thing I want you to know All of the people that I've had a chance to preside over and probably all of the people whose weddings I've gone to, I don't think there was one of them who actually intended to get a divorce. But I want to tell you, I've dealt with people through the years when something's gone wrong in the relationship. What went wrong was this. Oh yes, some marriages come apart with no help from the outside, but there are so many for whom the outside has an alluring attraction. And those two people could sit in my office and as they sat there I would hear the most abominable lies and by the way I had at least two people testify to this illustration between services I wouldn't need any I have my own history my own experience of dealing with individuals but it's it's terrible when you get two people that have been married for a long time and the marriage is coming undone but there's worse than that it's worse when these two people will sit there and one person who had no intention in the beginning of destroying the union, but has been allured into a relationship that started out so benign, a little extra time over a cup of water, a little extra time at that sales call, a little extra time before or after the job, just a little bit too much casual interrelating and slowly the human heart begins an attachment for that which is illicit which by the way there is a natural bent for anyway and to see two people in that situation it's bad enough to know that somebody's heart is being wrong on this side of the journey but the lies go so much before that one person in that situation will sit there and they will say these terrible words I don't love you but you know the worst words they'll say I never loved you These are some of the most painful words that can ever be said to somebody and as one person was sharing with me at the end of their Sabbath school class and I with them It's not just that a human heart can grow cold to another. It's that it gets colder and colder and colder until it's stone hard friends I don't know of anybody that's gone down into a watery grave who has said to themselves, this will be temporary. I'm only doing this for the moment. But I've known many who have slowly found themselves wandering away from their first love to Jesus. So this morning, I want you to know something. Christian Christian congregations and societies have always done well with a culture as long as the culture was persecuting them. But as soon as the culture becomes their friend and the culture begins to drift and the collective voice of the churches is no longer the conscience of the culture, the church itself starts cozying up with the world. And when this happens, we should not be surprised that affection for Christ, affection for the church, affection for Christian parents, it all withers on the vine and dies. doesn't just happen without an understanding. There are laws that govern these relationships and laws that govern our sense of oneness to Christ. Now I don't want to go any farther than this message without saying this. The highest standard of a Christian was enunciated by Jesus when he was asked what is the great standard? What is the great commandment? And Jesus was able to communicate that the highest standard is love. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. This is not a message for you to grab onto so that you can get a hold of somebody else and make sure they know they're outside the way. If you don't understand your own depravity, if you've never come face to face with some of the dark dynamics of what's potentially inside of you and has worked its way out, if you're not a humble person, this sermon is not for you. But if along the way you've come face to face with the fact that you wonder how in the world Jesus could save me? How in the world could Jesus reach out to me and redeem me again and again? Then this message is for you. But you need to know something. The devil wants to take away the ones you love and he wants to take away their love for Jesus. And along the way, if their love for you can be kicked to the curb, that's just fine too. It's hard to raise children to love Jesus in this society. I visited with somebody this last week who basically said, you don't know how many people there are out there, mamas and papas whose hearts are hurting, they're breaking because they spent so much time shaping the lives of their children and their children appear to not hardly care. Writing from Grass River, New York in 1861, Ellen White wrote this, my dear children, we, your father and mother, feel a deep interest for you. You may sometimes think that your parents are too strict and that they watch you too closely, but dear boys... Our love for you is great. We've dedicated you to God, you're his, and we must keep you separate from the world that you may be the Lord's. We want your lives to be right and pleasing in his sight. Don't feel discouraged, my children. Satan's ready to lead your young minds, but go to God, seek him for strength, pray much, and give him your heart's best affection. I'm gonna skip one paragraph and go to the end. We want you saved. We want you to be just right and to live for God and to be an honor to his cause. Watch Edson against your besetments, be sober, be watchful. God will enable you to overcome. And my dear little Willie, may the Lord bless you. We shall pray for you. Pray for yourselves, which I find to be a very interesting line from this prophetic voice. And she signs it, your affectionate mother. So what's the church to do? I found some interesting things in studying this topic of standards. Let's talk about a few things that probably you're not familiar with. One of the first things that jumps out with me as I look at this message is that God has a standard for his people and how to relate to politics. Have you read about that? We are not to find ourselves engaging in political allegiances. You may vote. Matter of fact, go ahead and vote. It's your right to exercise as a free citizen in a democratic country but at this point in time should you declare so and so to be the 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 savior or so and so to be the villain at this point in time you effectively cut half of your audience off from wanting to hear anything else you have to say does everyone understand this we are to pray for our president we are to support our government but we are not to align ourselves politically this kind of tag and label gets in the way of a higher goal and a higher standard. We are not to be known as this or that politically. It does us no good. It does Christ no good. This was an interesting thing that I learned as I was pressing. Not that I wasn't familiar with the general tenor. But when I came across in the search phrase, separate from the world, as I searched out the 278 references or whatever there are one of the specific things she says so you may think so and so is the worst thing since black slime and so and so is the best thing since sliced bread but these are not to be where our topics of discussion go these are not where the center of our interests lie we're looking for people we're seeking to advance God's cause and we're not to get caught up in the muck and the mess that surrounds the political systems of the world. Could I hear an amen? God's church is not to be known as Democrat or Republic. God requires us to step back from these labels and to make sure that our labels show that we're citizens of a better country. And that better country is heaven. For as much as you choose to be engaged and as much as you seek to understand truth, you go right ahead but don't trammel the name of Christ with allegiances to certain political powers, right or left or in between. We're called upon to announce the coming kingdom, which will have no end. And in the meantime, may we be humble and meek. Another standard. Ellen White says that God's people, as we approach the end, are going to be uniquely different and that there will be a meekness and a humility about them that the world doesn't have. Think about it. That's not a mealy mouth inward-looking, woe is me, woe is me. Though that's a knowledge that I'm a sinner saved by grace. I don't have to be anybody, and I could be nothing. But wherever God points me, I'm going to do my God-fulfilled task, knowing I'm a child of the King. Sometimes I'll get stepped on. Sometimes I'll get set up. But whatever the situation may be, I'm trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm bringing a meekness and a humility to my life. These are standards that mark God's church. Another standard for the end of time that we don't hear much about is unity. She talks about the poisoned fruit of dissension. This is to be a standard in God's church. Do you understand how brilliant this standard will stand out in a world that is constantly polarizing? The Holy Spirit is being withdrawn from the earth. You would think the Holy Spirit's being withdrawn from the church. But it is not to be so. We are to avoid the topics that have the ability to bring the poison fruit of dissension into our midst. God is calling us to a completely different kind of standard. Now, here's the good news reading from Adventist Home, page 402. And by the way, friends, do you understand what the word siege means? You know that most cities that are sieged, they surrender. The enemy surrounds the city. Eventually they run out of water. Eventually they run out of food. Eventually they run out of will. Most cities that are sieged with an army completely around them fall. The church is under siege today. But God promises that there will be a mighty victory for those who hang on. Your children are under siege. Never have we lived in an age where anybody could have a platform to broadcast their ideas to so many so easily it can be used for good it can be used for evil but this is the thing you need to know the battle is over the heart and the mind the thoughts and the affections satan wants both so does god jesus is deserving lucifer the would-be one time lucifer is not here's the good news starts out bad gets better if there is any way by which satan can gain access to the mind He will sow his tears and cause them to grow until they will yield an abundant harvest. But here's the good news. In no case can Satan obtain dominion over the thoughts, words, and actions. Let's get it right. Thoughts, words, and actions unless we voluntarily open the door to invite him to enter. Could you say amen? You are not a functionary of his oppressive demonic regime. You maintain a degree of divine dignity simply being made in the image of Christ and separated by a boundary that protects your right to choose. Satan does not have access to set up addictions and besetting sins inside of you unless someone, somewhere creates some kind of propensity and then at least in most cases you give permission he will come in and by catching away the good seed sown in the heart make of none effect the true. so what's the point well here's the point she wrote right years ago about the enchantments of books do you know what the word enchantment means enchantment is when you can't quit looking. You can't quit listening. You can't quit watching. Enchantment is when you can't quit thinking. She would write about books in her age a century ago, a millennia, a century, not a millennia. She would write in her age a century ago about periodicals. And now remember, friends, this was back in the age in the rudimentary days of the press. At best, there might be a few color pages to look at. Most of the time it was black and white and yet the subject matter was so tantalizing and the forces of evil so present and the mind so curious that the imagination could grab on to what was written in the words and you could start an engine of addiction, an engine of enchantment that was hard to shut down. So imagine in our age when at two years of age we drop these devices into the hands of our children and whether it's something as worthless, I know this will date me, but whether it's something as worthless as angry birds, I mean, you know, that's even old now. Or whether it's something as enchanting as these supposedly good digital offerings that absorb the attention (laughs) so much so That the ordinary dynamics of childhood are gone. By the way, I'll give you something to think about in research, listening to the news not too long ago. They're finding that autism is related to sleep disorders. And that the cycles of sleep start much later into the evening with those who are on the far end of the autism, on the side of the autism spectrum. Wouldn't it be interesting... (laughs) And won't it be someday, sad though it be, to be in a pathology class, a social, biological, mental pathology class in heaven, and for Jesus, the master scientist, to be showing us, yes, all of those simple rules I put into your life to protect you, I want to show you how all these things were connected. That brain of that little child, that brain of that adult, unable to rest for hours after being tantalized by the flickers, and the engagements and the pictures and the dynamics of mental unrest and mental health that built out of the backside of that, Jesus will be able to connect all the dots. In the meantime, we're here processing by faith. Listen, I want to tell you, I know for a fact, I won't name the place. But having done this for 30 years and being connected in a variety of places, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, it was the rage. Everybody had to have this, tada, this data, this technology in their school. I know of one school where they've categorically cut it all out. And it's not in Michigan. I mean, those, those, those electronic devices were it. There had to be a portal. There had to be a connection. I want to tell you, the operative word is portal. We got a new operative word in our language too, didn't we? Firewall. I want you to understand. When we put in the hands of our children a key which opens the door to things they're not prepared to understand, it's as if we're saying to Satan, you want the key to my child's mind? Here it is. I'm going to give it to you. You can channel in all the things that will link naturally with their carnal nature which I have prayed would be, would be removed and replaced by the divine nature of Jesus. You're going to have access to feed every weed that I want to make sure is extracted from their life. People do it all the time. They think nothing of it. They wonder why when their kids get to be a certain age, they have no interest in the church, no interest in Jesus. Be careful little eyes what you see. Be careful little ears what you hear. Be careful because I'm here to tell you the devil has no access unless we give it to him. The good news is the devil has no access unless we give it to him. Now societally we're giving things away that as parents we don't want given away. It's hard to take your child somewhere. It's hard to go somewhere yourself and not have thrust upon you the things that would thrust a dagger through the heart of your love for Jesus. So maybe the issue isn't so much that we need to deliver ourselves from the legalistic rigors of standards that were in the way, but maybe we need to come back to loving Jesus and then figuring out if those standards were actually there to protect the love. My wife doesn't have any problem with the standards that put reasonable boundaries on my relating to the opposite sex, and I don't have any against her. If I had no boundaries, she'd have a right to have something against me. If she had no boundaries, I'd have a right to have something against her. We didn't get married almost 35 years ago just so that we could watch it slowly unravel, and we certainly didn't get married so that someone else could later hold the hand that we held at the altar. It's not a standard that's going to save me. It's a standard that could protect me if I wanted to be protected. No standard is going to substitute for the love that I have for her. But no love is up to the constant assault of all kinds of experiences without a standard. And the Christian experience is no different. So why is it that we've become so confident on expressing the grace that forgives, but we've not thought much about the grace that protects The grace that provides victory and a little margin to think. The scripture is very clear that Christ has brought us this tremendous gift and that at the reception of the gift we are now to live differently than we lived before. Part of it is evidence of what's happened and part of it is protection for what's happened. And when you don't have the evidence or the protection, you probably have whitewashed, sepulchrism, Seventh-day Adventism. And woe be unto you if that's all you have. But let's come back for just a minute to the couple. I never loved you. That's a lie. I've never seen anybody come to the altar that wasn't madly in love, if that's even a good word to use with love, who wasn't beautifully in love with each other. But I'll tell you, I've watched people who have fallen in love with someone else. And along the way, the enchantment of the illicit has become the rationale the ruination of the other and now it's really not so much that I've never loved you it's that you were never as lovable as this person you think the human mind can't be twisted and tweaked you think it can't be deranged you think, it, you think it can't be confused and taken advantage of? Satan has been studying human beings for 6,000 years, and he's pulled out all the stops now. And the truth of the matter is, if there was ever a day we needed to come back to the things that protect the relationships we have with Christ and with each other, it's today. Go over to the book of James. Who would want to read from the un of James. That's how Martin Luther felt about it. It's the un-gospel. Maybe that's because it's so gritty, granular. Maybe it's because it's so ordinary. Maybe it's because it requires action without feeling. I was visiting with someone between the services. Here's the operative question. Well, let's do it after we read this. James chapter 4. What's the source of your quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members. You lust. In other words, you crave. Some definitions, interpretations say you crave and you don't have. So you commit murder. You're envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask and you ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. Everything's focused on you. It doesn't sound like a very vibrant church And James is writing to a group of churches. You adulterers and adulteresses. There's our image. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility to God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks with no purpose? That he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us? But he gives a greater grace. Praise God. Therefore it says God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. So here's the operative question. I never loved you. She knows it's not true. She still loves him. So here's the operative question. Could that love come back for that person? I know it can, although it is rare to see it because this enchantment whether it's gone all the way to the bonds of physical affection or whether it's only blurred the line emotionally which is the stepping stone too it's all been denied until eventually it's out in the open and then what's been denied over here is that this was ever real this was ever good this was ever worth hanging on to I had somebody between the services tell me about somebody they knew For whom the spouse had this problem and that problem the amazing thing was with a new commitment to each other and to God it all turned back around could this person keep loving or come back to loving this person the problem is they don't want to that's the problem the question is will they choose to by sheer power of the will The truth is, is that if this person would understand that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, and if he were to say, what a sinner I am, and if he would confess his wrong to elicit third-party alien bond, and if he would confess his wrong to only legitimate bond if he would go beyond drawing new lines, new standards, and he would actually choose to intensify his actions as they were when he was courting, he would find that that which he had trampled on could be brought back to life by the chief heavenly horticulturist, Jesus Christ, and the fruit of love and the plant of love could and would grow again. So what's, Paul, what's James say to do? Very interesting line. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil. That's where the hard part is. I don't want to be in rebellion against God. But maybe what I'm doing is not wrong. Uh, somebody thinks it is. My parents thought it was. The pastor thought it might be. The problem with sin, and it works exactly this way, and the problem with standards, I mean, the devil has really pulled off an almost complete amazing spiritual coup. He took the things, he's done two things. Number one, he found a way to start robbing our love for God by loving the world. And then he took a whole generation. Some of you, I, I actually have a measure of, a true measure of sorrow for some of you, because some of you, my parents' generation especially, you were caught in between, you were caught, you were being drug along Some of you were actually in our institutions where the love was dying off, but the rules were remaining exactly like this. They weren't dying off. And the the disciplinary touches and the encounters that people had left an exceptionally poor taste. In other words, the standards were still the club, they were still the lever to wield control, But the absence of genuine redemptive interest appeared to be gone. Now, by the way, a rebel can't see redemptive interest anyway. So keep that in mind. But even in the places where people were sincere and sensitive hearted and got themselves into bad situations, without the love, the standards actually become the chokehold. But let's go a generation beyond that now. Because... We've now seen a couple generations come on the scene, and the truth of the matter is, the devil has been able not only to shoot a dagger into the heart of the corporate church with love for the world, but now he comes along and he says, through the testimony of all those people who didn't sense the love but got the standard, the standards were the problem. Those rules. And so now here we are, Struggling to recapture our first love and struggling to know how to protect it, lest we become bleeding heart legalists and we go back to what actually was a standard to protect your relationship, but go farther than that, go all the way back to the love relationship that it was designed to protect. Hear me. There are some of you that use Sabbath like it's a vacation day and you start your vacations on it and you end your vacations on it, and when you're on vacation, You never darken the door of a church. There's some of you who use the Sabbath as a way to oppress those who don't have the liberty of getting it off, but they're gonna make and do things for you and wash your dishes and all this and that. There are some of you for whom the Sabbath is nothing more than a wonderful way to recharge so you can go back there and build your nest egg or build your security or build your significance. The Sabbath and the, the standards that were designed to protect it convict us when we're wrong and save us when we humble ourselves before the Lord and submit to the legitimacy of their protecting power. Let's talk about dress. I, Man, i read something interesting. I'm just going to read it to you. Hoops and modesty. You say, Pastor, this should be a safe discussion. Nobody wear hoops anymore. Oh, dear is right. Hang on. Sabbath keepers who profess to be God's chosen peculiar people should discard hoops. Now, if I, if I wanted to be funny, and please don't anybody do this, I could say, could you say amen? And that would be so easy. You could say amen. Yes, let's get rid of the hoops. Hang on. Their practice and example should be a living rebuke to those who wear them. Some plead convenience. Now, I wish she was alive where I could ask her what she meant because there is nothing in my mind that I could imagine would be convenient about wearing a hoop a hoop dress. I mean, you need the whole aisle to exit the church service. <laughs> now, here's where it gets interesting. I have traveled much and have seen a great deal of inconvenience attending the wearing of hoops. And those who plead the necessity on account of health Wear them in winter, which is a greater injury than quilted skirts. Pastor, could you get on to something more relevant? I'm getting there. You won't like it. While traveling in the cars and the stages, I have often been led to exclaim, Oh, modesty, where is thy blush? What could cause her to say that? I have often seen large companies crowding into the cars... And in order to make a headway, the hoops had to be raised and placed into a shape which was indecent. And the exposure of form was tenfold more with those who wore hoops than with those who did not. And were it not for fashion, those who immodestly exposed themselves would be hissed at. But modesty and decency must be sacrificed to the God of fashion. May the Lord deliver his people from this grievous sin. God will not pity those who are slaves to fashion. But supposing there is some little convenience. Now listen, because I'm getting ready to get traction here. Suppose there is some little convenience in wearing hoops. Does this prove that it is right to wear them? Let the fashion change, and convenience will no longer be mentioned. It is the duty of every child of God to inquire, "Wherein am I separate from the world? Let them suffer a little inconvenience and be on the safe side. What crosses do God's people bear? Come on. They mingle with the world, partake of their spirit, dress, talk, and act like them. Okay, pastor, I didn't get it. That's okay. I'm not done. What if there was a little convenience? So I'm going to combine two things now. What if there was a little convenience? And here we go. The exposure of the form was tenfold more with those who wore hoops. Does anybody know where I'm going? It'd be better if a woman was preaching this sermon, maybe. It's for men and women. How many of you know that the real engine driving the internet, the financial engine driving the internet is pornography? How many of you know that? The greatest source of revenue coming out of the internet is pornography. How many of you have heard the statistics of how many men, and the women are unfortunately following along, are addicted? And what's more so, if I was a betting man, I would not hesitate to put down money that there is a Group of people listening to me right this very moment for whom this issue matters. They're locked in a desperate fight to be free. If that's you, don't lose hope. There is a living, loving God who has the ability to draw you out of that mess and show you how to really love. But if you've heard this, and if you know this, and if you've taken the name Christian... Tell me why I know why it's convenient now I'm just going for it We are so liberated that we are enslaved So why The why is already here. It was convenient to wear the hoops. Why would Christians follow the world in wearing clothes for whom the exposure of form was tenfold more than those who wore the hoops? Does everybody know what I'm talking about? If you need to exercise, we believe in it. But it is not right for a myriad of reasons for Christian women to repeat, or men, thank you, to repeat the aghastness of this author by choosing to exercise in public places wearing things that have gone so far. I'm telling you, please, for God's sake, if it was for nothing more than that man or woman who wanted to be free from the siege of immorality. Could we not bear a cross and think about the fact that God who made us so wonderfully desires us to live in freedom and to enjoy the privileges of marriage in a marriage setting, not scatter for all eyes to see those things which are only to be seen in sacred places. The next time your daughter wants to wear that, The next time your son wants to wear that in public, some parent ought to say, you know, that's really not appropriate, and there's reasons why, and I wanna talk to you about it. You see, the snow is falling around us. The ash of a society that's imploding is falling on around us, and we're playing in it, thinking that it's innocent and it's benign, and the real problem is the people who have the problem. Let's say for a minute it was. Let's say the real problem is in the person who got himself addicted to pornography. God forbid that every time he started to run, or she, she had to stumble over you. The Christians of this age should live different, but they don't. And it's one thing to say, I'm done shooting heroin in my veins. Give me the needle. Fling it away. It's another thing if the devil has pulled his greatest coup on the psychology and physiology of man and he has turned something that was supposed to be so beautiful inside the proper bounds of love into an addiction. I know. Delicate. Serious, uncomfortable. But there ought to be a place where these things could be discussed in the context of righteousness by faith. But I'll tell you something. James decided that along with faith, there ought to be a few works that make it work better. So, for the sake of the Christian brother, weak or strong, and for the sake of the glory of God, and for the sake of yourself, Stop and think about some of these things. What are we watching tomorrow? Many are gonna sit there and they're gonna watch. And while the actual activity itself could be discussed as legitimate or illegitimate, what comes on in those $5 million 30 second spots will often be an affront to Christian values. And I know we've got machines to bleep out the words and all kinds of things like that. But I want to tell you something. The world will be there making obeisance, and this is why they can charge that kind of money. Our affections are on things that get in the way of affection for God. What do we listen to? I drive between here and Grand Rapids fairly often. And of course, Grand Rapids is is the home of a very conservative church, at least in theory and history. But if I were to tune, as I often do, from a rock and roll station to the Christian stations, and I could not easily discern the words, there would be nothing different about the music. It has not always been so. The violence that we watch... The vulgarities that we listen to, and to be very honest, there's a side of us, I hate to say it, but I I just have to, there is a side of us that when something that isn't funny comes on, there's a side of you that wants to laugh, even though you know it's not funny. Why are we letting the devil lay siege to us like this? Why are we making our pilgrimages to the high places of this world? Why are we putting the key in the hands? Since the devil can't control my thoughts and take over my mind unless I let him, why should I let him? And there are some of us who who found ourselves letting him without knowing better, and we've spent the rest of our lives trying to take the key back, and it's hard. Submit. This is how it starts. If you're that gentleman there who's fallen in love with that miss over there, it starts by saying, you know what? I'm going to be at least intellectually honest with myself. I had somebody tell me in the Reese Chapel, I'm going to say this too. I had a girlfriend of mine, this was a woman, I had a girlfriend of mine call me up and tell me, you know, Ellen White says drinking coffee is a sin. She said, no, it's not. I'm going all the way, Okay. She said, no, it's not. Well, she says it is. To this lady's credit, who's living free now, she decided that she was gonna search it out. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. But you've gotta do it. I know, you've gotta do it. Your life is all pressed out of, there's not more in your day by God's design than you can do without turbocharging your engine. And for any of you that are mechanics and for those of you that are not, you turbocharge an engine, especially a gasoline engine, and you just get more out of it over a short period of time, you wear it out prematurely. If you've ever read about vital force or life force in the writings of White, is there anybody here that wants to sign up to live 10 years, 10 years fewer than God designed for you? Raise your hand. Depression could be an issue in that situation. How about evil speaking and evil thinking? That's a standard. You're going to get to go home today. And you only to go home like this deflection posture what a lousy sermon who does he think he is or you can go home like this Lord lead me all the way now there's an argument going on in the Seventh-day Adventist church right now there's lots of them unfortunately it's the poison fruit of dissension but I'm going to tell you what one of them is One of the arguments going on in this church right now is whether or not the people that come to see Jesus will have left these things behind. If we want to really slam the argument around, we call it an argument against sinless perfectionism or for sinless perfectionism. You know what? I'm quite convinced that nobody is going to know if they're perfect or not except by trusting in the perfect provision of Jesus. But having said that, you can't read the seven messages to the churches and not read messages about he or she who overcomes. There are three groups of people for whom this is going to be formative and primary. Jacob, when he went to wrestle, he didn't know he was going to wrestle. He's kneeling by the river Jabbok, and while he's kneeling there, somebody grabs him. He spins around and grabs back like you're not getting me. All he could think about was that his brother Esau found him a little premature, and this was a fight to the death. And he's wrestling, and he's calling out to God, not knowing he's got God in his hands. He had already confessed his sins, but he felt like an abject sinner. Somewhere in the middle of the night, he realized it was a case of mistaken identity. His hip was out of joint and he was in excruciating pain, but he knew he had God in his hands. I want to tell you there was nothing about Jacob that would give you a sense he was right with God, but he was right with God when he went to wrestle. Group number one. The second entity is Jesus himself. In Gethsemane, he prayed, Lord, let me out. If there's any other way, and the Father said, There's not. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will." He goes all the way to the cross, abused beyond description, isolated without any human ability to comprehend or understand what that was emotionally costing him. And he hangs there in darkness, hidden by God, but feeling separate from God completely. He became sin. It wasn't just that he felt sinful. My sin was his. He took it all. He actually became sin. Hard to imagine, but that's what the scriptures say. And as he's agonizing there, he says, God, why have you left me? And being the perfect sacrifice, he dies in the confidence of his father's love He was perfect but felt no perfection. He had never done anything wrong. He was the perfect sacrifice. And then we come up to the third group. That group living right at the end. I want to tell you something. They are not going to be weak. They are not going to be in love with the world. They'll be hated by the world. Thousands will have left them myriad thousands more will have joined them they're going to come up to that same time referred to as Jacob's time of trouble and they are going to not know how in the world they could be saved and they will not have recognized that by simply putting their lives in Jesus day by day and following him to victory They actually became like him, not even seeing it themselves, only seeing their lostness. Friends, let's not argue about sinless perfectionism, but could we let Jesus be Lord of all parts of our life? And could we live a life of advertisement that I have been set aside by Christ? Could we live holy lives that are distinct and different from the world? Could we leave unspotted from the world? If I sneezed all over the front row today, they would not be unspotted by me. But this is the admonition of scripture. I had said I wasn't going to talk about this to people who knew about it. Probably most of you know about it already anyway. I'm going to combine two things. I'm not taking you there because it's getting late. Isaiah 59 says, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Lord will do what? He's going to raise up a standard. Take your bulletins out, and let's look at what it says. This is a standard. Stephen Crane wrote a book called The Red Badge of Courage. It was about a man who got afraid and ran away, but he came back. Look at this. What does it mean, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you? I love this from the Review and Herald, 1907. Let us strive to overcome. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame. There we are, back at the language. And I'm set down with my father in his throne. Let us overcome the hasty words which mar the happiness and peace of mind about those of those about us. Let us overcome the impetuous tempers. These are all standards. Let us be kind and patient, accommodating, pleasant, thinking evil of no one. If we resist the devil, he will flee from us. Oh, verbal biblical language. And here's the mechanics of it. Around every tempted soul, there are angels of God ready to lift up the standard of righteousness if if the tempted one will only show a spirit of what? So let's get this right. The flakes of contamination are falling as our society implodes in its, its, its short-term setting aside of the standards of protection for civilization and for holiness. If righteousness exalted a nation but sin is a reproach, We're in a very reproachful moment. And of course, the worst people on the face of the planet are the Christians because they call out right and wrong. But if I get this right, when the devil comes to get me, all I need to do is say, Lord, you know how I feel about this. There's a side of me. He knows he's not here without some traction. He's picked out the the precious poisoned fruit to offer me, but I like how it tastes. God says, would you choose to acknowledge that this is wrong and submit to me? As soon as I say, Lord, help me. I don't have the desire. I don't have the power, but I've got the will. There's an angel nearby that says, raise the colors. There's a battle about to go on right here. The angels of heaven rally to the spot of the conflict and the battle is no longer mine. I'm in it, but it's now Christ and his holy ambassadors that are setting me free. And it's pretty rugged sometimes because at any point in the time I say, change my mind. Satan wrings his hands in joy and says, all right, we'll take the ground again. There is a day coming when the Holy Spirit will be completely removed from this earth, the enemy is gonna come in like a flood. And that's not just no buying, no selling, there'll be no breathing. At that moment in time, the vengeance of Christ for his abused children is gonna have met, the cup will be full. And when the enemy comes in to wipe every visage of similarity to Christ off the face of the globe, When the temptation to cave is so great because we're tired, we're cold, we're alone, we've battled our fears, we might be hungry, I don't know what it'll be, Jesus says, when the enemy comes in like a flood, and by the way, friends, the dams are breaking even now, Christ himself will come down into the battle, and he will declare game over. In the meantime, we have to declare, game on. Final story, first time for me. I was reluctant to use this illustration, but I'm gonna. I took off last Sunday morning in an Airbus 320. And as I'm flying along at 30 some thousand feet in the air, all of a sudden there's this huge clunk and this amazing vibration. Pretty soon you see the flight attendant hurrying down the hall, guess where I was sitting? I had one of those really good seats in the exit row. She leans over all of my friends on the other side of the airplane and is looking outside. She goes back up to the front. She gets on that phone. She looks pretty intense. She sits down in her jump seat and buckles her seat. And guess how I'm feeling right about now. (laughs) It's not long until the pilot comes on and he says, friends, we've lost an engine. They didn't shut it all the way off. They just throttled it way, way down. But it was a bad enough problem in their mind that we were gonna land in Little Rock, Arkansas instead of Houston, Texas. I've never been on an airplane where the fire engines follow you down as you land. I've never sat on an airplane with all the lights and the lime green, you know, super terrestrial looking emergency equipment is there staring you in the face. They could have just kept going. But it's like someone said to me downstairs in the hallway after the first service, they said, yeah, but if you lost the other engine. Now, mind you, they coast for a little while. But have you ever sat on an airplane when they landed? Have you never felt him throttle it up to make sure you get to the end of the runway? Would you like to be on an airplane that has no power? Does Christ want a witness on earth that has power? Then it's time to redraw the lines that protect our relationship and not hand the devil the key to our minds. And while we don't need to go into hyper fearful mode, we need to love Christ with all our heart, our mind, and our strength. And we need to declare... I'm on the Lord's side, that's all we need, and the angels say, step aside. And while I'm in the battle, the victory is the Lord's. But if I declare it's a non-issue, and I lower the colors, I'm the victim where I could be the victor. A lot of us don't know where our standards came from. We just know they chafe us. It's time for us to study and learn why we have them. Are they inspired or are they archaic tradition? Are they functional and formative or are they futile and frustrating? They could be all of those depending on your experience. I want power to be free from the shackles of Satan. Do you? Then let's come back to a love relationship with Christ. And if you're the man, sit it right there, and you don't love anymore, do the first works. And seek the Lord of love and he will bring life back to that which was crusty and cold and dark and tomb-like friends At the risk of being completely misunderstood I Want you to understand that doing is becoming and form and function Protect essence. You're watching things you shouldn't watch. You're sometimes watching them when you should be here praying. You don't want to be here because you've fallen in love with that. Your money is given grudgingly at times because you really would rather spend it doing this. All of these things are a hurt to God and an offense to heaven. It's time for us to return to the first works and seek out the old paths, as Jeremiah said. And I'm appealing to you today to simply say, Jesus, I want to do what's right. At least I'm willing. Make me want to. Give me joy. Teach me to love you. And may I be a walking advertisement to the world about how much I love you. May not be embarrassed or ashamed of any of the things that make me different like you or protect my walk with you. This is my prayer for this congregation this morning and everyone who watches. The devil's had too free of access to us. It's time to say, you're getting the eviction notice. It'll be served by Jesus. Amen.